Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in hundred years at the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, it's a good Saturday morning to you right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli here with the Pass Ball Show. Here with you live for the next two hours. You got several very good interviews I got planned for today. Um, lots of different things to go on. We're going to get into Bases Empty blog. Uh, some of the things I wrote about within the last couple weeks, some baseball issues, a little bit about the All-Star game. And just a reminder, this program's interactive. Feel free to send me a tweet anytime, at John underscore Pielli. And I'll, be, I'll definitely make sure that I respond to everything that I hear throughout my Twitter account over the course of the program. So uh, we're going to start this off. We're speaking with former Major League pitcher Jerry Royce. Jerry pitched 22 seasons in the big leagues for the Pirates, the Dodgers, um, came up with, with the St. Louis Cardinals. So uh, a lot of different things going on with Jerry Royce. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy this interview. Hey, this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Jerry Royce. Jerry, what's going on, buddy? Everything's good. It's We've got the All-Star game coming up week. We've got some pennant races in baseball. Good things are going on in my so in the world of baseball, I have to say, all around the board, it's a thumbs up. Yeah, I tell you, it's one of the funner times of the year, man. You get to midseason, obviously the All-Star game, which will be held in City Field over in New York this year. But, you know, it's just the time of year where there's a lot of teams that really feel like they're still in the pennant race. And, uh, you know, listen, man, it, you know, as, as time moves forward, obviously a couple teams will drop off. But, you know, we're getting really in full throttle as far as the, the best part of baseball season coming up. Oh, I think so, because things really heat up. Everybody looks forward to the month of September once July rolls around to have star break. Uh, then also you're going to see a flurry of deals. Who's going who's to be a player? Who's not going to be a player as far as the postseason? Who will throw their hand in and uh, look forward to next year. All of that is right there in front of us. Yeah, very true, man. And once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Jerry Royce. And Jerry, of course, um, yeah, you come off uh, you know, a 22-year major league career, very good lefty for uh, several seasons. And uh, one thing I found very interesting is uh, you know, you pitched for, uh, for a high school, Rittenauer High School over in St. Louis, and then you, were, you ended up being drafted by them. Uh, how, how did you feel when you, know, you, were, you were lucky enough to be drafted by your hometown team? 
surprised because the Cardinals were in the background. There was a lot of interest by a lot of major league because we had a couple of kids who were prospects back in those days. And, of course, the draft was handled a little bit different than what it is today. Uh, there was a lot more on scouting. Of course, there weren't as many teams that were buying for the so you got a pretty good idea who was scouting for who and when some uh, the upper echelon of scouts came into town. So it, uh, to me, that I was, I assumed I was going to go high in the draft, but the Cardinals never presence anywhere that I pitched. I never saw any of their scouts. Uh, I never heard anything from them. And then in uh, early June of 1967, was a second round draft choice by the Cardinals. I was a bit surprised by it, but looking back on it some 40 years later, I say, how lucky was I? First of all, to be drafted by the hometown team, and just a little over two years making my major league debut, especially for an organization that in 67, the year I was drafted, they were the world champions, and in 60, they got to the World Series only to lose against the Tigers. So it was one of the organizations in baseball at the time, and I made it to the big, to the big leagues in just for two years. What were the chances? Nah, absolutely, and it's very impressive too. And I'm sure, you know, in addition to being your hometown team, you you look at the fact, like you just said, they won the World Series in '67. Of course, won it prior in '64, and then you know, while while you were a member of the organization, made it back when they played the Tigers in '68. So, uh, you know, I think you got your career off to a good good start. You know, you I'm sure you're happy to be there. Well, you know. I- it was the right deal. I knew what I wanted to do, and I, I, had, I was faced with a decision, just like every kid that's drafted after that point all the way up through this year. What is it you really want to do? Do you want to play Major League Baseball? Uh, is the money to, to give up a potential college career? Uh, how do you put the emphasis on what you would earn in college as opposed to not going to college and taking a chance as a pro? Uh, there was a lot of things to consider in a short period of time. In my case, I was fortunate. Never got hurt. There was always somebody there to help me when uh, things were a little tough. And if you're going to play a long period of time, you're going to have a lot of that. I made the right decision as far as I was concerned, and I would tell anybody that's drafted now, if they ask me for advice, you got to look at a lot of different factors, and you got to be honest with yourself. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Jerry Royce. Now, of course, you know, you end up being traded from the Cardinals to the Houston Astros. Tell us a little bit about that move and, you know, the Astros, who became a little bit up and coming later on after, after uh, you know, probably after you had left there. But uh, tell us a little bit about the feeling about going from St. Louis to Houston. Well, it was the year when there was rumblings about you know, the big question, what would happen if a player in his contract and played the entire year? Would he be considered a free agent? That would be two years in the future. But there were four players in the start of spring training in 1972 for the Cardinals that hadn't signed the contract. And each were dealt a different way. Each were dealt with in a different way. Uh, the way they dealt with me was to trade me to the Astros. I found out later it was because I grew a mustache, which, which didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but um, it was what it was. But fortunately for me, I went to an Astros ball club that was an excellent team. Not many people know 
1972, they led the National League in runs scored with, um, with better pitching and the elimination of a team known leader as the Big Red Machine. Uh, Houston might have gone to the postseason much earlier than they eventually did. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, they ended up developing a lot of good young arms throughout the 70s. And, you know, you were there. And, of course, you know, guys like J.R. Richard ended up coming up. And, you know, the team, the team you know, certainly set itself up to be a uh, contending team for the next, you know, decade at least. Well, they were good. But the Dodgers also had some players coming through the system. And they went on to get to the World Series in 74. And, you know, Cincinnati then became a powerhouse, probably as good as anybody. Um, in 70, well, let's go back to 1970 and 72, 73. Well, no, they weren't the, no, it was the Mets who beat them in 73. And then 75 and 76, where they had probably their strongest team, you know, they were a force to be in it with in the, in the National League West. That's where Houston was. So, Houston, you know, as good as they were, they still had to contend against both the Dodgers and the Reds. No, absolutely. Great points there because, you know, you look at really the, the team, the National League West in the 70s as a whole, like you just touched on, well, it was pretty strong. I mean, there was there was four or five teams that were all kind of building championship caliber clubs and the unfortunate thing was they, you know, they had to compete with each other and only one team was able to make the postseason. Yeah, it was the Dodgers and the Reds in the Western Division, and then in the Eastern Division, the powerhouse, the Pirates, and also the Phillies, who came on later on. So, uh, kind of how things shook out in the National League, there were four teams to contend with. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with Jerry Royce. Now, Jerry, of course, you end up pitching for the Pirates for several years, and then you finish your career in 1990 with them. But uh, the bulk of your career, really the best the best part, and obviously you had a lot of success prior and, and later, was with the, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And you were involved in a very interesting trade when uh, you, know, you went over from Pittsburgh to L.A. in exchange for Rick Roden, because Rick Roden ends up you know pitching the same amount of time with the Pirates. Um, it turns out to be a very good trade for both teams. Tell us a little bit about your time for the, with the Dodgers and uh, being involved in that trade for Rick Roden. I was stagnant with the Pirates at that time. Uh, the National League at that time with the Pirates introduced a lot of young, excellent right-handed Chuck Tanner was a, was a manager who played the percentages. He liked to have a right-handed pitcher to go against the teams like the Expos, uh, who were in the Phillies, who were strong right-handed. Uh, those were two pretty good ball clubs. He stacked the starting rotation with right-handers, uh, which left no position for me except in the bullpen as a long reliever. And you, didn't, you don't get a lot of innings that for the Pirates back in the 70s. So for me, it was fortunate that there was a spot with the Dodgers when Tommy John became a free agent after the 78 season. And gradually I was able to work my way into the starting rotation, made an adjustment to my workouts, and also came up with a cutter that I was able to throw strikes on command, and it changed my career around. 
And when I did well for the Dodge, Dodgers also did well. So it was beneficial for both of us in the eight years in Los Angeles. Yeah, no question about it. And of course, like I just mentioned, you had some very good success with the Dodgers. Um, you know, you end up uh, being part of three different postseason teams, including the World Series championship team of 1981. Take us back to 1981 for a second. You know, tell tell us about. You know, obviously you had the strike shortened season, the split season, and uh, you know, of course the Dodgers end up winning. Uh, you know, winning one half of the, the division there, and you're running the postseason in 1981, which obviously culminates with the World Series championship. Well, one big aspect was 1981, in addition to being a world champion year, was also the year of Fernando. Uh, he came on and did something worldwide that few baseball players could ever do, and I don't know if anybody could ever do it again. He made fans out of people who didn't care about baseball. They followed Fernando, and they followed in numbers wherever the team played. And being a player, you know, it was great having someone like Fernando on the club because, well, he deserved to be there. And uh, he figured that if you have Fernando going, you got a chance to win. And everybody else just kind of, all the other starters, the other players, we lived off that energy. And that allowed us to get through tough times during the course of that season. Of course, there was also the strike sat everybody out for a little more than 50 days, and it was a divisional situation the first time in baseball history, at least modern baseball history, and, well, it, it just happened that in every series we were behind and were able to work our way, claw and scratch, and come back to win. It was the only World Series event, and, of course, I was a winner, and trust me, as a kid, there was nothing more that I dreamed of than pitching in a World Series. Fortunately, I was in one and the winner. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, John Pielli here with Jerry Royce. Another interesting thing about the whole thing was, you know, you you becoming a newcomer after the Dodgers had been to the World Series and lost to the Yankees in 77 and 78. From what you saw being part of the team in 81, how bad did the, the core group of players on that team want to get that World Series championship once they, they realized that, you know, they were facing the Yankees, the team that had beat them in 77 and 78? Well, it, it was a point where a lot of those guys, they came to the big, the early 70s, maybe 71, 72, 73, and then they became a, a part of that team, and they were the, uh, the core part. But though they had been to the World Series three times, they never came home with the championship. They knew the writing was on the wall, the time was close, when all of them win a championship together. And that was fortunate that in 81 we got close to the World Series and then come back and win it. So for them, for a lot of them, the song was winning in 81. And then after that, one by one, the players went on to different clubs and eventually finished their career somewhere else. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the way it turned out, man. Now, Jerry, of course, you had the uh, the opportunity on uh, the, you know, June 27th, 1980, of throwing a no hitter. Uh, if you want it for a couple seconds, just take us back to to that date. Obviously, throwing a no hitter has got to be a, a special moment in any pitcher's career. But uh, tell us a little bit about what went right that day and how you know things turned out in the day of your no hitter. A pitcher has to be incredibly easy to pitch a no-hitter. The reason for that is, no matter how good your stuff is, no matter how well you're locating your pitches, all it takes is a fluke hit, a bat, 
bloop over the infield or a ground ball that just sticks in the that a fast runner can beat out for a single. Fortunately for me, the hard balls were right at somebody, and other, other times they were routine. Another fortunate thing is that I didn't walk anybody in that ball game, and I had the hitters hitting the ball for most part early in the count. I went back and took a In fact, I just did it oh, a year ago because I finished my autobiography that'll be coming out next year, and I talked in depth about pitching a no-hitter. Pretty much inning by inning, with the special emphasis on the final inning, the aftermath of pitching a no-hitter. So the experience of going through is one thing, and finally getting it is another thing, and then the aftermath uh, of how remember it. At that time, when I pitched that no-hitter, I had no idea, no idea that 33 years later, people would still come up to me. I remember when you did that, because I was dating my girlfriend, and we were, we happened to be at a hamburger stand, or somebody else said my wife was having a baby. Um, somebody else told me that uh, they were listening to the ball game, their grandfather, and that was one of the memories that they had. So everybody story and it's center, centered around the ball game that I pitched and that three years ago. So how many more stories am I going to hear about an event like that? So it had a it had an impact not only on me but on a lot of other people. Yeah, very true, man. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with Jerry Royce. And obviously, no-hitters have that ability of just sticking around forever. Now, you know, as you, as you move on, you also have the privilege of pitching in four different decades. Uh, you know, you hung around for the 1990 season where you, uh, you know, you were with the Astros organization and then you were with the Pirates and got a September call-up. Tell us about how, uh, how much uh, being able to pitch in four different decades means to you. Well, you know, that was, that's a, that was an accident. In the last 22 years, uh, which I think was a, a feat in itself, but, uh, there's, there comes a point where you say, you know, I was able to pitch Major League Baseball for 22 different years, and that says a lot. The other part was an accident. My first uh, game was in 1969. I had 22 years, and you would come to 1990. So that being a bit of a fluke, but uh, also tells a bit of a story, and that is... Um, the ability to pitch at that major league level. Nah, I tell you, and it's not—it's not that difficult, not that easy to do. I mean, a lot of pitchers, uh, you know, would, you know, would do anything for have the opportunity to pitch for 22 years. Now, listen, Jerry, I want to thank you for having some time today. Definitely appreciate you being part of the show, and hopefully, we can stay on, t- stay in touch, and maybe I can speak to you sometime again soon. Yeah, we can do that. We'll talk about the book once it's published. Fine. No, absolutely, man. I'll definitely reach out to you, and we'll make that happen. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hope you guys enjoyed that little discussion there with Jerry Royce. And, of course, Jerry uh, ended up coming back in the 1990 season to uh, pitch in four different decades, which is uh, certainly a very in- in- interesting and inspiring task that not too many players have been able to do over the course of Major League Baseball history. But, listen, we're going to take our first break of the day. We'll be able to back with a lot more stuff going on. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, back after this. 
What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop. Specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609 609- 927-9454 and check out their website www.redroseautobody.com follow them on Facebook and Twitter Red Rose Body Shop 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue Egg Harbor Township New Jersey 609-927-9454 Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. You're listening to MTR Radio, powered by mtrmedia.com. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to get in a couple things here. Of course, last week, Homer Bailey became uh, you know, the 31st pitcher in Major League Baseball history to throw a second no-hitter of his career as the, Giant, uh, the, Dodgers, I'm sorry, the Reds beat the Giants 3-0 on uh, July the 2nd. Uh, in the history of the Cincinnati Reds, only Jim Maloney and Johnny Vandermeer are amongst pitchers who have thrown more than one no-hitter. And I'll tell you what's interesting about it is certainly a lot of different categories to pitchers. You got Johnny Vandermeer, the only pitcher in Major League Baseball history to throw uh, consecutive no-hitters. And, you know, listen, I mean, you you look at Cy Young and uh, the fact that he threw three no-hitters. Uh, he threw one, one in a one in a National League, two in the American League. Um, you know, you look at other pitchers that were able to do that. You know, it's very, very interesting. I mean, guys like Frank Smith for the White Sox, uh, Cleveland's Addy Jose were some of the early pitchers. Um, you know, you look at you look at other guys who did it. Pud Galvin, who uh, you know, uh, you know, some people say were, was an actual African American uh, with the Buffalo Bisons. He threw two no hitters. Uh, you know, uh, diff- different guys uh, you know were able to do this. And I tell you, no. 
Nolan Ryan is obviously known for the seven that he's thrown. And guys amongst guys who have thrown more than two, you got Nolan Ryan. You got, of course, Cy Young in his three that I just mentioned. Sandy Koufax threw four. Larry Cochran for the Chicago National League team in the 1800s was the first to throw three. Um, you know, 1880, 1882, and 1884. Bob Feller was the other guy that threw three. So you look at other, other guys. Um, Cy Young's among a group of few pitchers, including Nolan Ryan, who have thrown no hitters in each league. You got Randy Johnson, Hideo Nomo, Kevin Millwood, who, of course, had the combined no-hitter in Seattle in addition to his one with Philadelphia. And Jim Bunning, who threw one, of course, for the Phillies and the Detroit Tigers. Now, other interesting things about no-hitters, you got... Um, you know, Kent Merker, who threw a combined no-hitter, and then he threw a no-hitter. Kevin Millwood is the only other pitcher to throw a combined no-hitter and another no-hitter, in addition to Vida Blue, who did that, you know, when he pitched five innings with the help of three three relievers in 1970. So a lot of different interesting things going on with no-hitters. Another thing I want to jump into while we got a little time, and of course, uh, everybody in July talks about the teams that are sellers and the teams that are buyers and, you know, how big of a deal it is for teams that are looking to compete in the race to go out there and get those extra couple chips but fans seem to make it more important or just as important for a team that that isn't in contention to go out there and dump players and and i don't agree with the whole dump and anybody that's followed the past ball show right here on the mtr radio network with john pielli understands that i don't like these dump deals i don't like the fact that you trade a player that's old for a player that's young just for the sake of getting rid of the older player and getting a player that's younger in there i think you target interest if, if you're the New York Mets or your Chicago Cubs or you're the Miami Marlins, whatever team that you are, and you want to go out there and make a deal, you, you, better, you better get somebody that's going to help you. You better get the type of player that's going to go out there and make an impact for you. Don't just grab your veteran players and dump them for something. Because that gets into the whole talk about well, who actually benefits from this. Is it the team that, that's selling or the team that's buying? Because you're making it to a point where the only teams that could benefit are the teams that are adding players for the pennant run. And I, I did totally disagree with that outlook. I mean, obviously, if you're a team that's looking to get, get younger, you're a team that's looking to get better for the future, you should target needs that are going to help you in the future, not just get a couple A or AA players that are simply just going to go up there and, and be part of your team because they're not going to be part of your team. I, I say all the time about the Mets moves that they made in 2003. You know, you talked about, uh, you know, everything that Steve Phillips did, all the bad moves that he made. But, but the moves that were made in 2003 under Jim Duquette were, were just as bad because he simply got rid of salary for no other sake or no other purpose but just to get rid of salary. He didn't bring back a single player. And, and it wasn't even his intention to bring back a single player that was going to be part of the team for the near future. If you're going to run a baseball team like that, it's stupid. You, you, if you have a prized chip, it's one thing. If you're the Chicago Cubs and you have Matt Garza, if you're the Miami Marlins and you have Giancarlo Stanton, that's going to net you something. You're going to get top prospects from other teams. You're going to get players that should be a, an extreme impact over the next several seasons in exchange for the big players that you're giving up. But if it's just a piece here and there, if it's Marlon Bird with the New York Mets, what are you going to get that's going to help you? Nothing. You might as well just leave them around. And if the Mets are in a situation where they got three outfielders that aren't named Marlon Bird and they want to run them out there for the rest of the season, then I understand it a little more. 
but don't tell me you're going to get anybody that's going to have an impact on your team in 2014 and beyond for a guy like Marlon Byrd. If you're the New York Mets, a guy like Bobby Parnell may be more intriguing. You may be able to get a useful outfielder, maybe not a star outfielder. Maybe if you package Bobby Parnell and a couple young arms and a Brandon Nimmo and another player here and there, you could be able to get a guy like Carlos Gonzalez. But the possibilities of that aren't that great. So only trade a guy like Bobby Parnell if you're definitely getting somebody that's going to help you, not just uh, in the long-term future, but in the immediate future, which includes 2013 and 2014. I just hate when players are, are just dumped for nothing because everybody puts so much stock into the fact that they're getting something for him. And, and the truth is, you're really not. I mean, not everybody, not every Carlos Beltran is going to turn into a Zach Wheeler. I mean, you remember when the Mets traded Bobby Bonilla, and I know the Mets Met fans hate Bobby Bonilla, and they have every right to. There's no reason for Met fans to like Bobby Bonilla. But he had a couple good years for the Mets in the mid-'90s. He was their best player for a couple of years on a team that wasn't going anywhere. But they traded him to the Baltimore Orioles, and they got back. Do you even remember what they got back? <laughs> exactly. They got Damon Buford and Alex Ochoa. Two guys that weren't expected to really help out. Alex Ochoa was a prospect, but you see where these prospects go. Not all of them are guaranteed. And Alex Ochoa wasn't so guaranteed. He had some flaws in his game in spite of being a five-tool player. But they, they traded Roberto Alomar for Royce Ring. They traded Jeremy Burnitz for Victor Diaz. They traded Ray Sanchez for Kenny Kelly. And traded Graham Lloyd for Jeremy Hill. None of those players had any type of impact in the major leagues, and just about all of them are done. So when you make a deal like that, you have to think of the player. I mean, is it that point where you want to trade? You want to move this guy so bad that you want that that you want to get something for him? Sometimes you might be better off just keeping him. But yes, I understand when you're in a situation when you've got a younger guy that's playing. Let's say you're the New York Mets of 2010 with Luis Castillo. Now, the Mets would have loved to trade Luis Castillo. His contract made it impossible to do. And it was a situation where you looked at this guy and you realized that there was no way that, you, the, number one, no team wanted him, and number two, no team wanted to deal with the contract. So you put that all in there and you realize he's untradeable. But you understood the premise of wanting to trade him because the Mets had a younger player that they wanted to play. So this is when I understand I understand the fact that, that teams want to move players. They want to move veteran players to get something back. But I, I would rather see it done for this one reason. You move a veteran player if you have a younger player that, that's, that, that's, that, that you want to be able to use. And, and honestly, like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand why you just say, hey, just get rid of this guy for nothing. You know, if, if there's a place for him to play in the outfield or in, or in the starting pitching staff or the bullpen, then you're probably better off just playing him. And, and I really, I really look at this and, and say that people are a little delusional, and that's where these TRAID trades come from because people are just looking to move something, and have this dream that they're going to get some big ass, you know, big ass impact player back, and it's just not going to happen. So first of all, get off your high horse. You're not going to get anything back that's that substantial that's going to meet anything that's going to make any type of an impact for for your team now or in the future. And number two, I think you you should look at each scenario and see if it's a good veteran player. In my opinion, a guy like Marlon Byrd might make sense for the Mets to keep not only this year but maybe bring back next year because he has a very good uh, a very good presence in the clubhouse. He has performed phenomenal. He's leading the team in home runs and RBIs. 
So, so why would you want to get rid of a player like that so bad, especially if you're not getting anything in return? And those are a couple things that you want to get into in regards to TRAID trades because, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. You don't always set yourself up to guaranteeing yourself. Number one, it's never a guarantee. Even when you make a player, you know, a, a transaction involving a big player to get top prospects in an organization, that's not even a guarantee. So what kind of guarantee are you going to make when you dump a guy that, yes, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year, but you end up making, you end up making this trade to get somebody that's going to be released next year anyway. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of airfare. It's a waste of transaction money. It's a waste of everything. You're better off just not doing it. And unless you're going to move on and maybe get a team a little desperate that wants to go out there and make this type of big trade for you, there's really no point in doing it. John Pielli. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Lots more stuff to get into. Uh, of course, Bases Empty blog. Check it out. I post just about every day. All my articles are featured on mtrmedia.com with some uh, also on baseballreflections.com, which is a good site that you should check out as well. Uh, I talked a little bit about and kind of inspired by my interview I did last week with Bob Kendrick, the president of uh, the Negro Leagues Museum. I, I had the opportunity to do an article in regards to Satchel Page. And Satchel Page, obviously, in regards to the history of the Negro Leagues and still up to today may be the best African-American pitcher to ever throw a baseball in the history of the game. And, you know, there's some disputes about the day that he was actually born, which, uh, you know, baseball reference says it's July 7th of 1906. And if that's true, it's a, it's a situation where that would also be the same day that he was signed by Bill Veck and the Cleveland Indians. And that, that would be, you know, kind of a little irony, kind of a little, I find the interest in it. But, of course, he passed away in 1982 at age 77. But the signing happened in 1948. There was no question about it on July 7th. And, uh, you know, he signed, you know, about three months, or actually a little over a year and three months after Jackie Robinson made his major league debut, breaking the color barrier. His signing, of course, came under a little bit of scrutiny because Indians no owner Bill Veck was known for publicity stunts. More of them would happen later on, doing things like batting a midget, having players wear shorts as part of their uniform, and disco demolition night, which we know was a complete disaster. But the thought was that Page was being exploited a little bit. They, fans say, hey, here's a guy that's way beyond his prime. Why are you going to bring him in there other than to try to sell some tickets? And, and obviously, uh, uh, you know, with, without a dominant former Negro Leagues pitcher, he was a guy that certainly had the opportunity to uh, make, make a huge name for himself, one in addition to the name that he already made throughout his career in the Negro Leagues. But the timing that he pitched. Um, he's going to be regarded as the greatest pitcher in the history, history of Negro Leagues, hands down. Uh, the major leagues didn't get to see him in his prime. But Vex's decision ends up paying off because in 1948, Page ends up going 6-1, and 248 ERA, and 21 games, 7 starts. He was not the dominant strikeout pitcher that he was a couple years before, but he's very mature and had the ability to spot the ball wherever he wanted to throw it. And that's what I find fascinating about this guy. He, was one of the, he had pinpoint control, could put a ball pretty much anywhere that he wanted to on a plate. He used that to his perfection. And, of course, he ends up being part of the 1948 team that won the World Series. And 
And if you're a Cleveland Indians fan, you'll know that that's the last time the Cleveland Indians won the World Series. Not only was Larry Doby, a guy who I've profiled in previous PBS episodes, not only was he an integral part of it, but so was Satchel Paige. He got the pitch in game five, uh, got two-thirds of an inning bailing out uh, Bob Feller in a game that they ended up losing. But the Indians win the World Series that year. They beat the Boston Braves. They move on. They win their World Series championship. Of course, he ends up sticking around, having some, some decent seasons. But um, you know he he was you know he went uh, four and seven in uh, with a three oh four ERA in thirty one games in nineteen forty nine. Uh, of course, by the time uh, the uh, Indians made it back to the World Series in nineteen fifty four, he was a member of the St. Louis Browns, where Vec, the owner of the Indians, was now owning the St. Louis Browns. Vec brought him back this time, more, knowing more that he is probably going to be an impact player, and he had his best season in nineteen fifty two, going twelve and ten with a three oh seven ERA in forty six games six as a starter and led the American League in games finished, which I know wasn't a stat back in 1951, but he led the league in games finished with 46. 91 strikeouts, 138 innings, made his first All-Star appearance. He would go back the next year in 1953. He wasn't as dominant. He had a kind of a rough game, a rough go about it in, in uh, 1953. 57 games, a little bit of a higher ERA. His strikeout rate dropped considerably, but, but listen, the guy was also getting up there in age. And, uh, of course, he ends up making that triumphant return because of Charlie Finley and the Kansas City Athletics. He ends up pitching in 1965 at age 58. And he could be older. He could be younger. We don't really know his exact date of birth. But he throws three squirrels sitting starting a game. Obviously, I think there was some uh, some of a publicity stunt involved in it. He faced 10 batters, retired nine of them, gave up one hit, and struck out Boston pitcher Bill Mambochetti. And he finished his career with a 28 and 31 record, 329 ERA, 176 games and 26 starts, a whip of 1.33. Now, obviously, statistics in the Negro Leagues are hard to find. Bob Kendrick has assured us that uh, more stats are going to be available over the next several years, and you're going to be able to find out games that you 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 didn't you knew existed but didn't know the actual stats to. But his his phenomenal record could even be better in his Negro Leagues career, 150. 100 wins, 50 losses, 322 ERA, and 176 games, 89 starts from 1927 to 1947, a whip of under one, struck out 1,170 batters in 1,298 and two-thirds innings. He should have been inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. I, I think he was pretty on time, exactly five years after he was done pitching in the big leagues in 1965. 1971, who was uh, you know the special committee for the Negro Leagues, obviously put him put him in there amongst the first when the, when the committee was first being formed, and it, it turns out to work out very good for him because exactly five years after he was done pitching in 1965, he ends up being in a Hall of Fame in 1971. But certainly a tribute to a great pitcher and certainly a pitcher that doesn't get enough credit for how great he was for the game of baseball. And that, of course, is Satchel Paige. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You know, I got my interview with Brad Pennington to play within this hour. Next hour, I got my interviews with uh, Bob Watson and Jerry Royster to play on this edition of the Passball Show. So we'll be back after this. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. And you're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blazing the steel. 
always covering the most current topics today, check us out on mtrradio.com. We'll offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over 5.5 million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Welcome back. This is John Pielli right here on the MTR Radio Network Pass Ball Show. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed what you hear so far. But we're going to get right into our interview that I uh, recorded last week with former Major League pitcher Brad Pennington. And, uh, you know, if you're following baseball around the early part of the 90s, Brad Pennington was actually the heir apparent to Greg Olson. And Greg Olson, of course, was a guest on the Pass Ball Show probably about maybe six months ago. And uh, Pennington's problem was his control. I mean, he just couldn't throw strikes. He made a transition from a starter to a reliever. And, you know, you're going to hear all about it. Here's a guy that certainly had the ability. He threw the ball in the upper 90s, a left-hand pitcher, kind of in the mold of what you would consider a Billy Wagner at right you know, right now, maybe a Johnny Venters, you know, off of his Tommy John surgery. But, you know, unfortunately it didn't work out for him. But a great spot here. Hope you guys enjoy it. Listen to my interview with Brad Pennington. Brad, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Brad Pennington. Brad, what's going on, buddy? Uh, pretty good, man. Now, you, you came in as, a, you know, you drafted in the 12th round by the Orioles in 1989. Uh, you end up, you know, making your way through the minor leagues. Now, tell us a little bit about, you know, one, once you were drafted and your progression towards the major leagues. Um, well, after I got drafted, I couldn't throw a strike, as you can see from my statistics. So, um, that was a starter. Once they made me a reliever, um, the voyage was a little bit different. Yeah, it's kind of weird the way it turns out. I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, one of the things you're you're known for is having difficulty with your control and locating pitches. Now, it seems like once you made the transition, you know, from the starter to reliever in the minors, it seems like you got it together, like you said. So you had, you know, you were able to keep the walks down to a point, and you know, it seemed like you had some success throughout the minor leagues as a reliever. Which is usually what I tended to do. I know, like even in winter ball, my record 
like 30 and 4 or something. Wow. And Rick Dempsey always said, um, he goes, I don't know how any manager puts up with you in the big leagues because I come in, walk the base with Odin and strike out the side. And so it was a, it was a weird situation. Um, I'm glad I was a reliever at the point to get me there, but I wish I had been a starter later. Yeah, now, now you know, you make some good points there because obviously, you know, if you're particularly being a left-hand pitcher in baseball and the way the game has changed, I think it had started to change by the time you you had made the major leagues. The situational guys, the loogies, the, you know, bring it, managers bringing in guys to get one, you know, only one batter out and taking you out of the game, that certainly had an impact on you as well as a lot of other pitchers. It's not it's not as as etched in stone as, as going to be that simple. You bring in a lefty to face one guy, there's no guarantee you're going to get him out and then you, you know once you're out of the game the next guy comes in gives up a two-run homer then you know you're charged with the run that you know wasn't necessarily yes you put the guy on base but at the same time you didn't have a chance to get out of the inning oh that was always the way with me uh, it was funny when i first made the big leagues and i took greg olson's starting job relatively quick like and he was the first person that would save 30 games in a season and then it kind of became that situational lefty and that didn't work for me but I mean I had no regrets it was a good career and it was fun while it lasted but it, it, I wish it could have been a different story yeah, and listen, you can only control what you can control. But uh, you know, as, as, as you move, you know, you move forward, you you, you continue to try. Um, seems like you know the, the walks continue to be be an issue. The you know it becomes an issue as far as trying to trying trying to get out of your own jams. How, how many how many times throughout your pitching career, with whether it was with Baltimore or later on with you know some of the other teams you played for, uh, were, were were you in a situation where you just you couldn't get out of your own inning? You you know you left with guys on. Base and those runs end up scoring. How much did that impact your total career record? I don't know record-wise because I only lost about four games, but I think it impacted the situation a lot. Um, my situation a lot because the walk totals would go up. I mean, like I said, if I came in and walked a guy, then you'd be out of the game. Um, so I think my walk totals went up because of that. Well, if they didn't go up, they would have been the same amount. I guess that's an incorrect statement. My walk totals would have still been the same. And maybe I'd have walked more, or maybe I'd have struck out more. I don't know. But I think that they went up drastically because if you look at minor league numbers, um, I tended to get out of the situations that I walk people. And you think that was more of an indication of just being, you know, in the minor leagues, being able to pitch yourself out of it? Yeah, no, I know that's what it was. They, the minor league managers would leave me in to get out of it. But in the big leagues, there's too many jobs at stake. Yeah, very true, man. Now, you know, as you're, as you're trying to, you know, hang on later on, you end up pitching for the Allentown Ambassadors of the Northern League, and you get to be a starter again. Uh, is, is that kind of like, uh, you know, was, was that something that you were looking for another chance to try to start? Uh, tell us a little bit about, about your time in the uh, North Northern League East. Um, you know what? I went through a divorce. I'd actually quit and went and coached at North Carolina State. And um, and went through a divorce and decided to go back and play. And fortunately, Allen Down gave me that opportunity to start. So I don't know if I was really wanting to, to uh, re-swing the whole, you know, swing the bat again and go ahead. But 
Ah, now, back, now back on to your, you know, your pitching career. You know, you're picking, you're, you're, you're having, you're having the, you know, the issues sometimes. You know, we've we've stressed the fact that you know a lot of it was the time in Major League Baseball that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't necessarily be on the mound to get out of your own jams. Was there was there anything that you you tinkered with mechanically to try to to be in a position to be able to throw more strikes? ended up working out for you. I mean, it's a situation where I guess it was a routine that you were kind of used to. So therefore, you know, you were com- you were coming. Um, Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell you, really, I mean, your best year you had, obviously, in the minors was the 1992 season. Um, you know, a lot, lot of strikeouts. It seemed like, you know, you know, the whip was almost for the season close to one, which is, is really outstanding. And, you know, did you see anything in particular in that season that worked for you then that didn't work for you through, you know, maybe later on in the minor leagues and then throughout your career in the majors? No question about it. Listen, Brad, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the show. And listen, let's stay in touch, and hopefully I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you enjoyed that spot there with Brad Pennington. And, you know, of course, Brad, you know, a lot of talent, man. I tell you, a guy, a guy threw the ball really hard, and it's unfortunate that he was unable to get it together. Um, you know, a couple interesting things that he went over was the fact that when he was a, when he was a starter, he really had his things down mechanically. And then when he switched to the bullpen, it took him a while to get it in the minors. Once he perfected it in the minors, he couldn't get it together in the majors. And I tell you, it just shows how tough it is to really be able to make it at that level because you're up against the best of the best and you really can't afford to be a project at that level. You know, once 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 you 
own you know, all your talents together, you have to really be able to perform or else your shelf life in the big leagues ain't that long. And it's a shame to see that. But I'm joined in studio by my buddy Wilson Casado. And of course, Wilson, great presence here on the MTR uh, radio network. Wilson, what's going on, buddy? What's going on, John? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, anytime, man. And, you know, we get into stuff, obviously, the All-Star game coming up next week. Uh, you know, we got a you know, couple little interesting things going on. You see a Puig. Uh, the fans vote. He ends up losing out to Freddie Freeman. And, of course, uh, you know, the other side of it, which I'm going to get into a little in the second hour. But, uh, you know, what's your thoughts really on Yasiel Puig? You think he, you think he belongs in the All-Star game? I don't think he doesn't belong. I just don't know if he necessarily belongs over, the, you know, some of the other guys that were on that list. Uh, you know, he's definitely brought the Dodgers back from from the depths. They were like eight and a half games, you know, out of the the, the first place in their division when he came up, and now they're what like a, a game or a game and a half right now. So he's definitely had an impact on the team because they were struggling and stuff like that. But I, I don't know if I'd necessarily put him in over, you know, even a guy who was on the vote as well, like Adrian Gonzalez, who's who's been there all year and he's been. Uh, Producing uh, at a at a high uh, at a high rate. So, does he deserve to be on there? I can I can see the people who say yes, uh, and I wouldn't say no. But I, I don't think he deserves to go over some of the some of the other guys that were on there. I agree with that. I only agree with it up to this point, though. That you know he wasn't selected, you know by by the fans. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a starter. The you know. Bruce Bochy didn't put him on the team, and you get to the final vote. He's one of the five. He was not voted in there. From this point forward, I don't have a problem if he's on the team. No. Because, you know, you look at every year how many players bow out in the game. They decide they don't want to play a little, uh, you know, a little hangnail. They, you know, they don't want to play any all-star game. They'd rather be with their family. So as we get from now until Tuesday, a lot more players are going to bow out. There's going to be a spot available. And I will have no problem at all if Yassil Puig makes it from here on forward. But you would have had an issue if he would. I would have had a little final vote. Uh, you know what? That, to me, to me, that's up to the fans. Yeah. I mean, I, you can't you can't dispute that. Anything you put in the fans' hands. I mean, we argue all the time about you know certain players that get at large you know bids. Pablo mm-hmm. Sandoval over David Wright yeah. last year. Other other stuff like that. You know, fan stuff in ballot boxes. Once it's in the fans' hands, anything could happen. Anything <laughs> goes. Yeah, you know, but but I do think the fact that he wasn't he wasn't select he wasn't elected as a starter. Bruce Bochy didn't add him in as a as a as a replacement. You know, if he ends up coming. You know, replacing somebody that's hurt. You know, remember Giancarlo Stanton was hurt last mm-hmm. year. The Marlins ended up with no representation for the first, you know, for team for the first time in a long time. Yeah, and, and then basically, you know, uh, it is to determine home field advantage and stuff like that. I don't know. I, I don't necessarily have a problem if he goes in either way. Uh, but but I am I am kind of happy that it, it seemed like. Bochi made a statement that he wasn't going to be on the yeah. team unless you know. And you know what? As long as there's deserving players that he's putting over it, that's fine. But once you get into the injury replacement phase, uh, you know he doesn't have to be at the top of the list. If you could come up with you know three, four other guys that belong in there over him, I understand it. Mm-hmm. But if he becomes one of the guys, remember Bryce Harper last year. Yeah. Bryce Harper, you know, ends up making it because of, as an injury replacement what was a guy. Yes, he played a little longer than Puig did, but you know at the same time, the same thought was about it. All right, well this guy's going to be an All Star for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. Harper was, you know, elected as a starter this year. I think the same thing will happen with Puig last year and next year. Yeah, uh, if, if he keeps on playing the way I mean, he's I playing mean, dude, now, he's been phenomenal, man. You know, you get you got a chance probably to see him in that Yankee series. I yeah, mean, I mean oh, yeah. that dude, the guy, the guy is a phenomenal, phenomenal ball player. He, he does it all though. You know, what I mean? he's, <laughs> he's one of those rare, you know, even five-two players because he's not, you know, the fleetest of foot, but he'll still go out there and try to steal a base on you. He's running through walls. He's got a cannon of an arm. He's got power. He can hit for average. At least, you know, right now, I know they're trying to make him, you know, chase some balls out of the strike zone which obviously every hitter has to go through that after you know they start realizing what you're doing uh, and he'll have to make his adjustments just like the the pitchers are 
starting to make their adjustments on him now. No, very true, man. Listen, I want to thank you guys for joining us. The first hour of the program. Another hour left, man. Lots more to get into. Passball show. Back.